You're listening to Outlandish Outcasts at outlandishoutcasts.com. Welcome to Outlandish Outcasts. I'm your host, Al. With me, as always, the lovely Desi. How are you doing tonight, Desi? Doing good. You better say it that way just after that last comment before everybody got to hear this. He knows he's this close to being in the doghouse. Oh, no way. Uh, you would never put me in the doghouse. Hmm. Okay. Okay, maybe you would. <laughs> anyway, I think you are first this week because we just checked and I know that you're first this week. I know. I read the same thing you did while you were reading it, too. And I even read it wrong and said, that's not last week's episode, even and, though it was. And I corrected you. Yes, you did. And I, I corrected I said, you earlier today. That was episode. Why do we have to bring up the past? <laughs> <laughs> it was a couple hours ago. <laughs> we we're on the path of I was right. And then you like veered off like, eh, but this doesn't always happen just so we know. Yeah. <sighs> All right. What do you got for us this week? So I hope I'm saying this last name right. It's going to come out wrong. And there may be a time or two I say it wrong on accident. Just say it like three different ways and you have to, you'll be right at least one time. Well, it reminds me of frickin' because I heard it. I had to pull it up and listen because last names can be tricky. Yes, they can. My last name is said three different ways. Yes, it is. All depending on where you live. Mm -hmm. So it... I could be wrong. So anyways, I am bringing um, Peter Frukin to the story. Peter Frukin. Have you ever heard of him? I don't think so, but you never know. So I pulled this from All Things Interesting. Okay. So according to that website, he's the real most interesting man in the world. I mean, how could you not do a story on the most interesting man in the world? Interesting. He dug himself out of a cave... With his own feces. I think I do know about this very faintly. Like, I read about this guy. But that's not all he's known for. He's, like, done lots of different things. Um, Wikipedia has a list of books he's written. Like, there's Holy a God. lot of books. He's won some awards. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm not really going to go into on okay. that. But he's he lived quite an interesting life. So Sounds like it. So the short list of his accomplishments includes escaping, which I had mentioned, the ice cave armed with his bare hands and frozen feces, escaping a death warrant issued by the third reach officers. I'm going to say that. Reich. Reich. Yeah. So uh, Nazi. Yep. So anyways, and being the fifth person to win the jackpot on the game show, the uh, $64,000 question. Really? Really. Holy cow. So. This guy really is interesting. Pretty much. <laughs> so, um, however, the life adventurer, explorer, author, anthropologist, Peter Fruking can hardly be contained in a short list. So I just tried to highlight stuff and more I'm highlighting, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to be reading the novel. <laughs> <laughs> so he was born in Denmark in 1886. He enrolled in the University of Copenhagen and began to study medicine. Um, however, he realized indoors wasn't for him. Okay. And he dropped out of the university and began a life of exploration in 1906. Couldn't even make it through med school. Jeez. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you know it's not right for you, you just know it's not right this is for true. you. This is true. But he made his first expedition to Greenland in 1906. Um, 
they're the the Inuit people. I think I'm saying that Inuit people. It's, yeah, in Inuit or Inuit. I don't remember. Inuit. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know the people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he kind of like studied them. Okay. Um, he they hunted walruses, whales, seals, and even polar bears. And then he himself um, found himself right at home. After all, he was six foot seven. Holy cow. So, yeah, there's like a picture of him right next to his first wife right there. And you can tell. <laughs> it the looks difference. like it's a picture of me next to our daughter or our son. <laughs> yeah, you can't really say our daughter. She's pretty no, she's close to my height. Tall now, for but... 10, she's going to tower. I'm going to be the shortest one in the family. You might be. Scary because I was the second to the tallest in. My immediate yeah. family growing up, I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> no, Ian might not catch you. You never know. Ian's going to catch me. He's at least going to be my dad's height yeah. of 5'9". <laughs> <laughs> so he'll only have a couple inches on me. Um. Anyways, he, so he, as I had stated, he towered. And so he was able to take down polar bears because of his height. It Holy helped God. him in this. So he hunted them as well. Even in this picture I showed you, that's a polar bear coat. He made that wow. after he killed one. Um, in 1910, there was him and Rasmussen. I'm saying that name wrong. Okay. Uh, they established a trading post in Cape York, Greenland, naming it Thule. Hmm. And then after they did that, about two years later, um, he it's... That base served as a post for expeditions he would take people on. Okay. Um, and then that was also when he was on one of the expeditions. He found himself caught in a cave, like an avalanche, mm -hmm. came down, and the snow quickly turned to ice. And he didn't have any of his equipment on him to help dig himself out because it was all like on the dog sleds mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So just kind of stuck in there. He was stuck in there. So he got creative and he used his feces to bury him like frozen. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, comes out kind of like a I stick. mean, if you want to live, <laughs> I would probably get pretty creative too. <laughs> Do whatever you can if you want to live. That's for pretty sure. Pretty much. So, yeah. And then after that, he ended up losing a leg. He oh. amputated himself. Holy cow. <laughs> um, did the amputation, and then he just replaced it with a pig. So wow. I couldn't imagine that. So there's another thing there that he did all yeah. by himself. I couldn't imagine. Yeah, I, and I took it off myself, too. <laughs> I Yeah, wow. <laughs> I, I cannot imagine having um, a fifth of this guy's life, much less... No. You know, all of it put together. And then there he had married his first wife, and he had two kids with her, and then she ended up dying of, I'm skipping to the end of this just to find it, uh, Spanish flu okay. in 1921. Um, and then later on he ended up back in Denmark, and he remarried. He did find himself um, involved in a center of political drama, and this was during World War II, so he okay. was, um, I'm going to, Fruken, ah, <laughs> <laughs> never tolerated discrimination of any kind. And any time he heard someone expressing anti-Semitic views, 
he would approach them and in all his six foot seven glory claimed to be Jewish. Um, he would also... Wow, he so, was, so not only an interesting person, but a very good person as well. Yes. Um, awesome. He was also actively involved with the Danish um, Renaissance or resistance and fought Nazi, um, the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And then he was so boldly anti-Nazi that Hitler himself saw him as a threat and ordered him arrested and sentenced to death. Whoa. So... And he managed to escape. Like, he ended up going to New York. Him and his second wife divorced after 20 years of being together. Mm. Um, he ended up moving to New York with Dagmar Cohen, who is was a Danish-Jewish fashion illustrator. And then they lived in New York. Um, they fled, more or less, to escape mm-hmm. um, death. <laughs> And then oh, yeah. that's when, when Hitler wants you dead, and not just you as a people, but you as you, your name wants you dead. You better leave. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but then they settled down there, and he ended up joining the New York Explorers Club, where a painting for him, where a painting of him still hangs on the wall. Um, he lived out the rest of his days in a relatively quiet for him. And eventually passed away at the age of 71 in 1957, three days after completing his final book, Book of the Seven Seas. And then after his death, his ashes were scattered over Thule, um, Greenland, where his life was an adventure, hmm. or where his life as an adventure began. Hmm. That's cool. What so, an interesting person. Pretty much. Wow. I want to be interesting like that. I don't want that. I don't want to be interesting like that. I don't want his life. I don't want to be escaping from the Nazis while I, I dig myself I out of ice with poop. We we wouldn't even have that as an option. <sighs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> well, digging yourself out of a cave with poop might be an option, yes. but trying to escape the Nazis, that's not even... This is true. This is true. Not going to happen nowadays. This is true. All right. Well, that was very, very interesting. Really? Yes. It you really, think really so? Was. It really was. Are you still trying to just dig yourself out of the doghouse? No, not at all. Okay, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my first story this week. Better be good, Alan. I pulled this. Well, I started doing research on this after reading it on my Facebook feed earlier this week. Funny. You know, anybody who you know watches Facebook or Instagram, it's a meme fest. And there are, you know... A ton of, you know, pictures you and stats. From a meme? This is where I started. Funny. I started looking into it because I'm like, this just doesn't seem right. And it was a picture of, you know, people in the t- late 20s, early 30s, standing over barrels, pouring them out in the street. And it just said, U.S. government purposely poisoned 10,000 Americans during Prohibition. They did. Kind of. <laughs> this is where I started doing research because I wanted to know what's the fact behind this. They were poisoning the alcohol. <laughs> they were not trying. First of all, did people die of poisoning of alcohol during prohibition? Yes. yes. Over drinking. Did the government put things in alcohol? Yes. Did the government put things in alcohol to poison people? No. Because they weren't making the alcohol itself. The alcohol that was poison was added to was rubbing alcohol, cleaning solutions, things like that, so people would not use them to drink. 
Why would somebody drink rubbing alcohol? If alcohol suddenly became illegal, but you could go down to the store and buy rubbing alcohol, would you try? Not you, no. but could you imagine people trying? The rubbing I alcohol so in can. itself would make you sick as it is. I know. But what they you would did be was better they, off drinking a ton of mouthwash and getting nauseous. I, I agree. But they added mouthwash would have had it would have not been able to have alcohol in it back then. It'd be easier to buy a bottle of vanilla and don't drink that. It would, it would, <laughs> it would. Anyway, I decided I had to look into it just because I wanted to know the facts. Um, and like I said, from 1920 to 1933, uh, you know, it was illegal to produce, transport, or sell alcoholic beverages anywhere in the United States. And the question here that was being asked, did the federal government really add poison to alcohol to discourage people from drinking it? Did, in fact, add poison, poisonous substances, to the alcohol? This did result in thousands of people dying, but the reason, like I said, the reason for the alcohol being added, or the poison being added to the alcohol, it was not added to alcohol that was produced to drink. It was added to alcohol, like I said, that was produced for other reasons other than consumption. And it was to get people to stop consuming the alcohol. That was a bad plan. <laughs> it it kind of was. About 10,000 people did die. That's um, really sad. Of, of poisoning, of alcohol poisoning. The main thing that they would add was uh, um, they would add methyl alcohol to grain alcohol, rendering it poisonous. So that was their main way of making the alcohol poisonous. And it's not, And the government didn't do this themselves they regulated the businesses that had to do it like the businesses creating rubbing alcohol and things like that i just thought it was like it's one of those situations where you see something and it's true but it's not true for the reason you're thinking kind of thing you know what i mean so it was a little part of it was left out so people all of a sudden are like (gasps) enough of it was left out that you'd go oh my god i hate our government for doing this even though... But it's not even our current government. No, of course it's not. But, I mean, it was the government it doesn't of matter the United because States. Because it would really be matter? like Democratic-Republican thing in that instance. I yeah. bet you it was the Democrats that did that. <laughs> no, it was the Republicans. Yep, you know how that would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Anyway, I did... In doing my research, I read a couple of different articles. New York Times had one article... Um, But I did pull most of my information straight from Snopes. I love that site. That's my story about the government putting poison in alcohol. And yes, they did. Yes, people died. No, they didn't do it to kill people. They just did it to make them stop. They they did it so people wouldn't drink the alcohol. That doesn't work. (laughs) No, no, no. That's why you find people drinking mouthwash even nowadays. Oh, of course. So... Anyways, on to the next story of mine. Okay. So I pulled up. I was just kind of going through things. As you know, I like to find things to go traveling Mm -hmm. with. And I was like, "Mm, what's something I haven't really covered? I haven't really touched bases on any types of museums. Museums, and let me tell you, there are some freaky museums out there. Oh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't pull any of those though. <laughs> Remember that? We don't have to go into it. Remember the museum we heard about while riding in the vehicle with the kids? To we we're no. going to see your oldest, and it was a penis museum we had heard about. I don't remember. It was on. Oh the yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yes. There are definitely a lot of interesting museums out there. Yes. Yes. I forgot about that one too. 
So anyways, um, I pulled up the Museum of Bad Art in Massachusetts. The Museum of Bad Art. Well, there are three of them now. And um, currently, the gallery is currently closed for renovations. But, but they will be open again. So, um, and anybody can go to their website, museumofbadart.org. <laughs> I will have to check it out. <laughs> it is definitely interesting. Um, it's the world's only museum dedicated to collection, preservation, exhibits, and celebration of bad art in all its forms. How can you have bad art? I don't think that can exist. Check out the website. I will, I will, I will check out the website. <laughs> I mean, I just, art is such a subjective. Some of these view. things, though, it's like a very talented ten-year-old did it. Like probably okay. some Ian could draw because mm-hmm. Ian's pretty good at drawing mm-hmm. for his age. Yes, he is. But it's not something you would say is <laughs> auction worthy okay. or something like that. So, but. Some of these things, it's like there are people out there that can't even draw that good. <laughs> mm, I can't <laughs> but, draw anything. So. But you've seen me try to draw. I can't draw. You're not that bad. Somebody <laughs> guess spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's not hard to draw a bunch of squiggly lines and some circles. But when you're looking at it, and the only person who gets it is the eight year old. <laughs> <laughs> we have we think on the same wavelength. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here with a with 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 a green uh, crayon in my hand. That's because that's all that's really there. Well, I have the pen <laughs> well, over here. A pen over there, but I don't but reach you would have far. to stretch over here. So, okay, so this is a community based um, nonprofit institute de- dedicated to a collection. I already said this of preservation exhibits and collection of bad art in all its forms and all its glory. It was founded in 1993 and first showed, um, or their first exhibit show was in March of 1994, the only museum dedicated to bringing the best bad art to the the widest of audiences. So, so is it like, my head doesn't know where to go with this. Is this like the worst art in the world or is it just the best of the bad art so it's kind of in the middle somewhere? <laughs> See, I think that's where you would probably need to go to their website. I will have to go to their website because, I mean, we could post. We're gonna post their link on our link on our page so people can go there themselves and kind of look at it. But like okay. I said, I don't think it's bad. It's not art. bad. It's just it's perspective yeah. of things is different. And I mean, there's some of them here that there are, um, you know, famous artists that have painted things that look somewhat similar and not necessarily any better. They just happen to be a famous artist. Um, but yeah, these aren't so bad. No, not at cool. all. How do you get into the Museum of Bad Art? Do you know? Like is, what's the process? No idea. You go there. I, I know. I mean, how do you get, get your there? art into the Museum of like, do, do Oh, you like can go on the page committee? and you can actually, they have stuff, um, questions and answers. Okay. Um, there's a form that they will answer that for you if you are interested in mm-hmm. it. Cool. Um, but that website has everything you need to know if you are interested in entering your Do you think they'll take art. my sea monster? <laughs> your sea monster? Yeah, my picture we had on the wall in the hallway for years. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my. I that forgot I drew all when about I was it. Like 10. 
I forgot all about that was to cover up Ava's permanent marker fish. <laughs> it wasn't much better. Have, we didn't have I didn't have time to paint the walls. <laughs> the fish might have looked better than my some sea point, monster. Somebody did. even put a took blue crayon and made the fish's eye blue. <laughs> it was so bad. So bad. Oh, funny. That's Yeah, hilarious. when you have kids, oh, permanent markers, rubbing alcohol, well, actually take permanent marker yes. off, but not when it's a plaster wall. No. <laughs> it only takes it off of wooden doors. We painted over Toilet and over seats. and over and over and over. <laughs> painted over and over and over. And the moment we finally painted and got that off that same day, Ian took a permanent marker to the toilet seat. I yep. will never forget that. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Kid's got to draw. He needs to draw something. <laughs> that was plastic. So rubbing alcohol yes. took that right off. I was just, I saw that. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> just get the paint or a permanent marker off the wall and boom. Yeah. Ain't getting yep. rid of it that fast. At least they're out of that stage now. Thank goodness. So... My next story. So this is going to be fairly short. Fairly short. Very short, actually. It's just a list. It's a list? It's just a list that I found interesting. Great. It is a top 10 <laughs> list. <laughs> oh. Is this like Jay Leno? It's the top 10 most common U.S. street names. And I found it very most interesting. Most common? Most common U.S. street names. Hmm. My name better be on that list. You think there's a Desiree Street? There could be. You think there's a lot of Desiree streets? There could be. There could be. Well, number 10 with 6,377 of them in the U.S. is 7th Street. <laughs> this is going to be fairly Are they going to go down <laughs> to 1st? Hold on, hold on. Number 9 is Oak Street. Okay. 8 is 6th Street. 7th is Main Street. 6th is 5th Street. Uh, five is Park. I'm guessing that's Park Street, Park Ave, things like that. Um, fourth is Fourth. That makes sense. Are we going three, two, one now? Third is First Street. What? Second is Third <laughs> Street. And the most popular street name in the country with 10,866 street names, Second Street is the most popular. How the hell... <laughs> That was my first thought was, how the hell? That doesn't make any sense. And then I started thinking about it. In some cities, you will have a main street, and then they'll just say, well, the next street is the second street. And that's how it happens. You will have some kind of main street that runs through the road that maybe at one time was first street, but got changed to a different name to represent something else. And then the next street over it was always second street, and they didn't want to change it and change all the streets. So second street becomes... The most popular street name in the country. And I, uh, I just found that fascinating. Uh, I have no words. None. I, I really but don't. I didn't, if that's the case, though, if that's really honestly the case, how come First Street isn't like 10? Why yeah, is that's it, true. That's true. Why is First it after, is in third. I mean, unless. I mean, it doesn't happen do that often. First, second, but, and third, and then fourth just disappears. That could happen, I guess. Not every city is a clean city where, yeah. okay, I'll stop overthinking it. I don't know. Kind of hurts my brain. I did th I did also find it was interesting that um, Park, Maine, and Oak were the three non-numbers that made it into the top That 10. makes sense, though, because like Park Avenue, mm -hmm. 
Oak Street. I mean. And we, we get all the way to number 17 before we find a president, President Washington in Washington Street. Ooh. Number 17. Huh. So, yeah. Well, interesting. Just a quick little quick little list of the top 10 street names in the U.S. Dun, dun, dun. Not really the way that. Let us that. know if you live on one of those streets. We live on one of those streets. We do live on one of those well, streets. Well, not the top 10, but you know. Well, we Anyways. Live somewhere in the top 20. <laughs> <laughs> so, my last story is kind of interesting, I found, but I am a science freak, as we all know. Mm-hmm. I like science. This is. Okay, so let me just read the title. I don't know where else to start. <laughs> An entire river in Canada has vanished. In the space of just four days. What? Canada. Like like Penn and Teller close by, David Copperfield. Nope. <laughs> like, it's gone forever. It's no longer existing. It just disappeared. That's insane. And they were able to actually document it while it was happening. Well, that's good. Thanks to satellite technologies. That's good. And then because they noticed it on the satellite, mm-hmm. they were able to get out there and yeah. So it's not good, but it's good that they documented it. Exactly. So for the first time in modern history, scientists have observed an entire river disappear in the space of four days. The phenomenon called you'll like this river piracy. (laughs) (laughs) River. I knew you'd like that. Um, Is where one river flows flow is captured by another Historical evidence suggests um, it usually takes thousands of years for the process to occur, occur, but in this case, the Slims rivers fed by Canada's, I'm going to say this wrong, Kashkawulsh Glacier? Okay. Kashkawulsh Glacier? I don't know. Was co-opted in only four days. Um, a time frame researchers described as geologically instantaneous and likely to be permanent. So um, geologists have seen the river piracy, but nobody to our knowledge has documented it happening in our lifetimes, um, said geologist scientist Dr. Shigar um, from the University of Washington uh, Tacoma. So there were people that came from this university, Mm -hmm. flew in to kind of document and witness. And um, so the fellow researchers traveled to Slims River on a field expedition. They followed or they found that Slims, which had a flow averaging about um, 480 meters, which is about um, 1,575 feet wide. So bigger in our house mm-hmm. with <laughs> had much bigger <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like to try to pretend our house is really huge <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's all that podcasting money i was trying to like i was like wow i wonder how much bigger it is than our house and then i was like it's definitely bigger than the house is wide yeah it's really big anyways <laughs> um this had all but disappeared, and there was barely any flow whatsoever. It essentially is now a long, skinny lake, hmm. is what they now no, would yeah. consider it, because there is no, no flowing flow. yep. water. That would make it a lake. Um, the river gauges um, 
indicate that the water levels had dropped sharply between uh, the 26th and 29th of May in 2016, and to examine where all the water had gone, the team had surveyed the area using drones and a helicopter, and the culprit was, in this case, a river piracy um, became apparent. So for the last 300 to 350 years, Slim's River was fed by the north-running melting waters of one of Canada's largest glaciers. Okay. Um, but with the glacier retreating in, rec- er, mm-hmm. retreating in recent years, a period of intense melting saw the flow of meltwater punch a new channel in the ice, rerouting the flow southwards via the Cashwallish River. Okay. That makes um, sense. I, I, I see why it, or how it happened. You know? So scientists are saying, though, that this is, it's going to affect the um, ecosystem oh, yeah. big time. Um, and then on top of that, it's also going to affect um, like the nutrients and the sediments that were being carried down the yeah. river. Okay, yeah. For farming and stuff, because nobody really lived in that area, but further down the no, river, further down there the was river there was population, yeah. so that river no longer is there. Yep. So it's it's gonna affect the ag- agriculture as well. Wow. So. So That's some crazy stuff like. It is scary when the world and the earth change a little bit and how much of an effect it can have on on everything. Oh, for sure. For sure. And then they also, in this article that I have too, um, we'll post the link of this article, but at the bottom, it has their findings on that they reported to in natural or nature geoscience, which is a link to the abstract of... Of their findings. Okay. So, cool. yeah, so we'll people can kind of read scientists. Check out the link, and I'm sure it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm excited. I, I, every week after we record, my favorite part is going and looking at all your stories and like just diving into them. It's like one of my favorite things to do. That's because I'm an interesting person. I know what the fun things are to talk about. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. why. I, that's why I have you here. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's why you have me here. Yeah. I could do the show without you. What are you talking about? Uh, 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 you couldn't hit play or record. <laughs> <laughs> what do you? Well, I would just say I could hit play and stop. I would just say you need to edit that for me now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could figure it out. I'm not. I'm sure you that could. incapable. Sure but why would I do it when I have you? This is true. It's all 50-50. I bring the personality, you bring the technology. There we go. There we go. That was so mean. I'm sorry. It was kind of funny, though. Anyway, on to my final story of the night. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going to talk about the history of the Detroit Catholics muskrat eating tradition. What? And yes, this is still a thing that still happens today. Um, ew. Uh, Got some quotes here for you. Uh, One says, it tastes a little like rabbit. What's rabbit taste like? Chicken? similar to garlic roast beef. Okay. Uh, It tastes kind of like chicken. Um, Parishioners at the St. Charles uh, Bormio in Newport are not talking about duck goose or even deer meat. They're describing the taste of muskrat. 
No, thanks. I pass. It turns out they've had an appetite for this critter that has developed over the last couple hundred years. It all started in the 1780s. Um, Michigan was having some difficulty um, cultivating food to get through the entire winter. So it would make sense to like grab what's, what's available. There were other things available, but as... But at this time, a couple hundred years ago, Catholics didn't just give up meat Fridays and Ash Wednesday. You gave up meat all of Lent for 40 days. Wow, things change. But there wasn't enough grain for them to stay alive. And they couldn't, the fish population had depleted and they had nothing to eat. So <laughs> this uh, this priest... His name is, sorry, I'm trying to tell, say things from memory, and that's what I get. Um, yeah, Father I Ga- Gabriel Richard, he lobbied with the Vatican for special dispensation for eating muskrat for Southern Michigan Catholics during the 1800s. They granted him that. They just, The Catholic Church decided that in that area of the country, muskrat was considered, considered a fish. <laughs> Oh, interesting. So they allowed them to eat it. Um, it went on for a long time until the early, till about 1932. Um, it was very, and then it kind of died off a little bit. And then they had some f- funding problems with the local athletic departments. And they looked at the history books and they said, this is in, the six, in 1967, they looked at the history books and they said, you know what? They used to eat muskrat in this area. Let's have a big muskrat feed. So now every year in late February, (laughs) just outside of Detroit, about 400 people a year show up for their annual muskrat feed. This is as bad as lutefisk. (laughs) I've had lutefisk. It's not that bad. Really? (laughs) There are people that have eaten it all their life and they say it's gross. I mean, I've had it a couple of times. But they do it because it's tradition. Yeah, yeah. Ick. Anyway, um... You can, it's still going on today, um, every year. It's just $2 a person to go there and try your hand at some, at eating some muskrat. You know, I am one to try things. You'd like to try some muskrat. We just got to go to the, uh, St. Gabriel church in, uh, outside of Detroit. But I'm not going to travel out of my way to go there for that. I mean, if we want muskrat, we can find somebody around here to find us some muskrat. (laughs) But we might not cook it right. This is true. This is true. Or cut it right. Because if you don't cut the meat right, sometimes it can be ruined. It's like moose or elk, one of them, where if you cut it wrong. And this is what I was told. Because I tried them both at the same time. Okay. And one of them was powdery, and I didn't like it because of it. And I was told... Whoever cut it, cut it wrong, because if you don't cut it yeah. right, it gets that powdery texture, mm-hmm. and that was what kind of turned me off from it, too. Mm. I'm like, but I like the other one, just not the one, but I couldn't remember not, which not sure one which it was. Which. Yeah. I don't really like either of them. I've tried them, and I don't really, not a big fan. Everything, everything that's not beef, pork, you know. Chicken. Not corn fed, then it has the wild taste to it. Yeah, I, no, I, not everything. Like I like, I like venison. I like deer. I don't like know. venison. Rabbit's not too bad. I'll eat pheasant as long as it's in cream of chicken. Pheasant just tastes like chicken, except a little drier. And then with duck. Eh. I don't know if I. I've never tried duck. I don't know if I could because you hear. I hear about the stories where duck comes out all greasy, mm. and you have to make sure it's in a really big pan, or you have a really big drip pan yeah. under. 
that just kind of grosses me out the thought of that yeah not so much the duck just the fact that it it has so much fat in it i'm like oh yeah that is kind of gross but you know the flavors in the fat oh i never thought of that i bet it's the best tasting bird out there might be it might be you don't know what you're missing you've actually changed my mind here i might want to actually try duck we'll have to try it someday someday I don't know how to cook it, and I, I don't I'm not going to go shoot one, so nope. I don't know. We'll have to it would have it. to be in a restaurant, for sure. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for the stories this week. You can uh, come uh, send us an email, <laughs> outlandishoutcasts <laughs> at gmail.com. Go to Facebook at uh, Outlandish Outcast Podcast. I finally got a set up on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, what a pain on Instagram. Jeez. Oh, they make you like go through hoops. Oh, it was bad. Not being a person and trying to set up an account is not an easy thing sometimes. Yeah, I had to take a picture of Al with the yep. code and the business name and the username and... It was fun, fun All times. Kinds of fun and stuff. then we got the email. We apologize for the inconvenience. I'm like, do they not understand how big of an inconvenience? Because it wasn't yep. one little thing they made you do. No, it was a bunch of you stuff. You had to do a few different things and... to kind of get it set up to verify. Yes. And you can always go to the website outlandishoutcast.com and check out the show notes. You will, there'll will be links to the stories that we are talking about every week. So. It'll be fun, All fun right. times. I think that's it. Uh, Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Bye.